There is no need for me to give any illustrations because you have many of them running through your mind of where the church has given demonstration to the world again and again of disunity. And we probably do not realize how we, speaking of Christians generally, we probably do not realize how we have grieved the heart of God by disunity. Jesus Christ said there was one thing that would tell the world that we're his. He said, by this, not by these things, by this, shall all men know that you are my disciples. What was the rest of it, Diane Tyler? I saw you say it to yourself. It's amazing what you can see from up here. <laughs> Better watch what you think. <laughs> that you have love one for another. I watched her lips finish it out. By this shall all men know. By this shall all men know that we belong to him. I'm sure that sometime in the last four years I've shared this passage of Scripture or these two passages with you by way of reference, but we're going to go back to them today. Rather than beginning in John the ninth chapter, which I would like to do, I'll be gone on vacation, leaving this afternoon, so we're going to hold John 9 till I get back, and then we'll go back to the Gospel of John but I want to bring another message regarding the church. In the month of September, we have emphasized the matter of church. We're four years old. We've talked about church is, and then our pilgrimage, and then last week, where are we as a church? But today, I want to go back and underscore this truth, which is so dear to the heart of God for His people, that we be a witness of Jesus Christ by unity in the body. Now first, this unity is for us in this fellowship. Secondly, this unity is for us with our brothers and sisters in Christ outside the fellowship. And so the order of priority in our thinking about this unity is today us. Then, if we are able to practice that among us, then we can practice it with brothers and sisters of other persuasions outside who are Christians, but may be of a different persuasion than us in other issues or minor issues. You see, the Lord spoke to me back when I was younger in my first pastorate and said very clearly to me, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. 
And God pressed that to my heart. And something that I learned from that was as I practiced depending on him and learning how to love my wife as Christ loves the church, something happened inside of me regarding other people. If I cannot love her to whom I'm married as Christ loves the church, I surely cannot love you. The home is the laboratory. If I cannot love my daughter and my son with God's kind of love, how can I love you? And as I learn to love my family with God's kind of love by commitment and depending on his spirit, God began to do something in my heart about loving other people. And so if we can practice the word of God in our fellowship, then we can practice the word of God with other believers outside the fellowship who belong to other fellowships. And so we're talking today about maintaining unity. Maintaining unity. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul has just laid out the first three chapters, the doctrinal aspect of, of, of the Christian life and the church. It is the clearest statement in the first three chapters it's the clearest statement of the church found in all the New Testament. And he has sort of taken us up into the heavenlies and let us look down. And he said, before the foundation of the earth, and then he takes us right through Christ and the breaking down the middle wall of petition between Jew and Gentile for one new man and the building up of the body of Christ until we reach maturity. He's given us an overview, if you please. And now he comes to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, in light of what I've just shared with you about God's plan of salvation for individuals and for the church collectively, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The apostle Paul could have used his apostolic authority. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He could have said, I command you. But he didn't. You can almost hear the pathos in his voice, the pleading of his voice. He's saying, I urge you, I plead with you, I exhort you, I implore you. Live a life worthy. In your outward conduct, in the way that you conduct yourself. And that's the meaning of the word live or walk. In your translation, may be the word walk. But it means the way you conduct yourself. Let it be worthy of the calling you have received. What's the word worthy mean? It's a word that comes from a Greek word that means this. It's the balancing of the beam of a scale. You've seen the balancing scales. The dish on this side and the dish on this side. And you balance them out. Well, the word means to balance out the beam of a scale. And he says, on one side, you have received a calling from God. We're going to define that calling in just a few moments in Colossians. He says, you've received a high and holy calling from God. You're God's children. He says, now balance that out with your conduct. 
Your conduct is to be worthy of the calling you have received. They are to be balanced in your life. If you are God's children, live as God's children. Your conduct is to be balanced with your profession. Folks, there's nothing in the Word of God that ever says we can profess without living it out. It says in Romans that we're to walk in newness of life. It says, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins might live unto righteousness. Our conduct is always to be balanced with our calling. Our walk is to be as we are in Christ. And then he puts the emphasis on the calling you have received. Jesus stood in the front of Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus was dead. Dead. Why didn't, why didn't the disciples walk up and say, Lazarus, come on, go walking with us? Because he was dead. It was going to take a work of God to bring Lazarus out of the grave. And Jesus stood in front of that grave and he said, Lazarus, come forth. He called him by name. And when Jesus called him by name, Lazarus got up and came out of the grave. And folks, the Bible says we are dead in sins and trespasses. And I want you to know again today, as I've said it before, that were it not for God calling you, you could have never gotten up and walked. I was a 16-year-old boy when Jesus said to me, follow me. And I knew He spoke to me and in my heart I wanted to get up and follow Him. I received a calling. The calling you have received is a call from God Himself. If every one of us were rushing headlong towards hell Bent on our own way. I saw a report by a psychiatrist regarding the earthquake in Whittier, California. By the way, Norman Alma going back to California the end of this month to do a retreat out there, not far from where that earthquake was. We need to pray for them. They're seeking what God would have them to do with their lives. But the psychiatrist said these folks have gone through the earthquake and they said in just a matter of days... They will put the trauma behind them, forget it, and go on living as if nothing happened. People can hear about sin, death, and hell and go on living as if they're not going to die. It's the grace of God that called us. He says, you've been called by God what a privilege to live a life that weighs the balance, that equals the balancing of the scales of your calling. And then he says, be completely humble and gentle. Two words go together. Interestingly enough, those two words were not two words that were two characteristics that were lifted up and exalted in the mind of a pagan Greek. They were words that were used looking down on them. 
You were not to be humble and you were not to be gentle. They were words of derogatory nature for a human being. And yet when Jesus Christ came, God put a new content of those words and he lifted those words up and you see those words together, humble and gentle. We'll describe it in just a moment as to what they mean. But humble and gentle go together. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love modifies patient. Tells us how the patience works out. We'll explain that in Colossians. And then he says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The first thing to notice in that verse is that's a command. That's a command. You make every effort. Now, the second thing I would share with you from that, that word make every effort. I think it says in the King James, be diligent. Does it not? Endeavor. Does the New New American Standard say be diligent? Okay. Let me tell you what that word means. It means resolute determination to overcome any difficulty. Resolute determination to overcome any difficulty. In other words, folks, in the body of Christ, there are going to be difficulties. We all, whether we want to admit it or not, we all have our faults. We all have our idiosyncrasies. We all do things that are wrong. We all at times are insensitive. We all at times say something we shouldn't say. We all at times approach a matter in a wrong attitude or with a wrong spirit. We all at times offend somebody else. We all at times are offended by somebody else. We all at times fail one another. We all at times are failed by other people. There are difficulties with human beings. There are difficulties with a husband and wife. There are difficulties with parents and children. Because we all are imperfect with faults and failures and we all sin. And what the verse is saying with very great honesty is, in light of these difficulties between human beings, in light of the difficulties in living together as a family in the home, in light of the difficulty of living together as a family in the church, in light of living together with other brothers and sisters in other bodies, in light of that, first beginning with those we're most intimate with and then moving out, in light of the difficulty, have resolute determination to maintain unity at all cost. That's what he's saying. And folks, that means there has to be commitment in the body. My understanding of that kind of commitment is that I came here from Florida, not because I was looking for a job, 
because I wasn't. But I committed myself by God's calling to this body. And I am committed here until he takes me away. And that means it's like I and this body are in a boat in the middle of the ocean and we work it out together. Husband and wife don't get along, they split. Or they go to separate bedrooms. Today, in local churches, if I can't get along here, I hop up and go somewhere else. That was not the case in the early church because there weren't any other churches to go to. There was one church in each locality or in different homes meeting together. But there weren't different denominations. He says, have resolute determination to work out so that you maintain unity. Now, I have a question. Two questions. First, are you committed to this body? I'm not saying, will you be committed to this body? I'm saying, are you? Because there are folks here who are not a part of this body and don't want to be a part of this body. But those of you who are members, are you committed to this body? Secondly, is it in your heart with resolute determination to maintain unity at all costs? Now we go to Colossians chapter 3. And the Lord graciously spells out for us in Colossians chapter 3, a further step of how we maintain this unity. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12, he tells us exactly what we're to do so that this unity can be maintained. And I would say before we get into this, dear people, this is not optional. If I'm not committed to obey the Word of God, then at whatever point I disobey the Word of God or I'm not committed to obey the Word of God, at that point I impoverish my life and I stagnate as a Christian. Whenever God shows me something, He's holding me responsible to commit to it and to carry it out to the best of my ability in the power of His Spirit. Now, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. He's talked in the first several verses of the third chapter down through verse 11 about putting off the old and putting on the new. If you look at verse 10, he says, verse 9, he says, Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the, Im in the image, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. In other words, what he has said in that verse is, you are God's children, crucified with him, buried with Christ, and resurrected with Christ, and you are a new person in Christ. Christ lives in you. Colossians 1.27 talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Folks, what makes a person a Christian is Jesus Christ lives in them by the Holy Spirit. He says, in Christ, you have put on a new self. You are a new person. And as a new person, it is being renewed in the image of Christ. In other words, I am 
have the Spirit of Christ living in me, and He is in the process of renovating my life so that more and more the Lord Jesus' likeness is seen through my life. Folks, we're not Christians to go to heaven. We're Christians to be children of God who take on the likeness of God. What the Lord Jesus desires of your life is that your life be the expression of Jesus. That I be the expression of Christ. And so a Christian is a new creation with Christ living in him by the Holy Spirit and there's a process of renovation. But he says we must cooperate so that our outward life is clothed with the likeness of Christ. That which is on the outside is true to that which is on the inside. Christ through us outwardly seen. That's what God's after. And there's a gross misconception today in the minds of many people that, that, that Jesus comes to live in us, in us, so we go to heaven. Jesus said, by this shall men know that you're my disciples, that you have love one toward another. Folks, it's the way we conduct ourselves that's going to demonstrate we're different. And so now he tells us how our outward conduct is to be, especially in relationship with one another. Verse 12, Therefore, in light of what I've just gone over, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put on garments with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The first thing is he gives you a threefold reminder of what your calling is. Look at it in your Bible. Doesn't the King James say, as God's elect? Does the King James say, as God's elect? The elect of God? All right. It can be the elect of God. It can be the word chosen. The word chosen simply means picked out. But he gives you a threefold Statement there reminding you of your calling. He said, remember, he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Balance out the scales. Now, what's the calling you've received? He says, first, you are the chosen of God. Secondly, God has set you apart. The word holy means to be set apart from the unclean to that which is clean. God has chosen you. God has set you apart. And he says, thirdly, dearly loved or beloved, you are dearly loved by God. Chosen, set apart, and dearly loved. That's your calling. All right, we continue. He says, clothe yourselves. That's a command. Folks, that is an aorist imperative in the Greek. That wouldn't mean anything to you except maybe some of you. But let me tell you what that says. There's a sense of urgency about it. Dear people, it's like he's saying, at once, at once clothe yourself with these virtues. At once. Don't delay. At once. Now. Don't wait. Now. Put on these things. Now he gives you five things there. First, compassion. The word compassion has reference to this. It's that your heart is torn at the sight of suffering by another. Jesus was moved with compassion. Folks, we can put that on. 
You say, how do I put that on? Two basic things involved in putting on. One is, I choose. God, I want that in my life. I want that in my life. There was a young man out of my first pastorate who went into the ministry. He went to Southwestern Seminary, and then he's a pastor in Fort Worth, Texas, and been in the same church a number of years. But I watched that boy, and, and one day I, I, I said to him, I said, Johnny, where did you get such compassion? He said, night after night, I ask God for it. Compassion flowed out of that man like a river. And in his early 20s, I saw such compassion. And he had prayed night after night for God to give him compassion. You choose to be like Jesus, but you ask God to work it in your heart. Only God can give you a compassionate heart. Only God can give you such a heart that when you see human suffering, your heart is torn by it. Only God can give you compassion so that when a brother weeps, you weep with him. When a brother rejoices, you rejoice with him. You choose, you want it, but you depend on Jesus to give it to you. Compassion is a heart that's so tender, it's torn at the sight of somebody suffering. The second word is kindness. The best way to understand that word is sweet disposition. Sweet disposition. The third word, gentleness, humility, humility. Humility is not saying, well, I'm not really anything at all. There is a counterfeit or a false humility, but humility comes from a true concept of who God is, a true awareness of what I am before God. And then when I have that, I don't look on other people downwardly. I look on other people as better than myself. Most of us, I'd say all of us in our natural state, and most of us, do not see ourselves with the truth of God's light. When I see the truth of my heart, I cannot look down on anybody else. There's no way. And so the secret of humility is having a clear vision of who God is and, and, and a clear vision of who I am. When I see him, and I see my wretched, pitiful heart, then I am humble and a servant to anybody else. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, woe is me. Woe is me. He just took a sight of God and a sight of himself. Our great need for humility is to see God and to see ourselves. He says, clothe yourself. Clothe yourselves with humility. The next word is gentleness. That's self-explanatory. But let me say gentleness is not weakness. I like what somebody else has said. Gentleness is not weakness. And the word can be translated meekness, by the way. But gentleness is not weakness, but it's strength under control. Gentleness. 
And the last word is patience. Patience. There are two words that are translated in your Bible as patience. I wish they had been consistent in translating the words. One has to do with the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. The other word has to do with being long-suffering with people. You suffer long with people. This is the meaning of this particular word, patience, in the NIV. I don't know what it is in the other translations, but this particular word means to suffer long with people. Not to suffer a long with them, but to suffer long with them. Long suffering. That's the word. It means, as it's spelled out in the next phrase, bear with each other and forgive one another. Patience. Long-suffering finds expression in two ways. First, bearing with one another. Ephesians says, for bearing one another in love. This just simply says, bear with each other. But it's not, you know, well, I'll just put up with you. But rather, it is bearing with one another in love. But let me explain the difference in forbearing and bearing and forgiveness. Bearing or forbearing has to do with a person's faults, idiosyncrasies, weaknesses. I used to use an illustration about my wife in this. I'm not going to do that today. But in living together, she has weaknesses and faults. I corrected all mine. fell into pride. Every one of us, every one of us, by virtue of the fall of Adam and the human race, every one of us have faults and weaknesses. Faults and weaknesses are not sin. I want to say that again. Faults and weaknesses are not sin. Folks, a lot of difficulty has been made or caused because we treat faults as sins, and we put guilt trips on people. A bad memory is not a sin, it's a fault. It's a fault. Being impetuous is not a sin, it's a fault. There are lots of things that are faults that are not sins. Idiosyncrasies are not sins, they're faults. It says, with long-suffering, forbear one another in love. In other words, treat them like Jesus treated his disciples. Peter was impetuous. But Peter never rebuked him for it. I mean, Jesus never rebuked Peter for his impetuosity. Parents, be careful that you don't make your children feel guilty because they have faults. Transgression is one thing, Sin's one thing, fault is another. You can lay a tremendous guilt trip on your kids when you blame them for their faults. In the body of Christ, we live together, we work together, we worship together, we have faults. But he says, put on these characteristics and put on patience so that you can 
lovingly be patient with somebody in their faults. And then he says, secondly, in the expression of patience, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Do you have something in your heart against somebody else in your immediate family? Let me give you the progression of something. A hurt towards you, a hurt in you because of somebody else causes anger. Whenever there's anger, there's always hurt. Are you with me that far? You with me? Anger left and undealt with because you don't forgive or you don't settle it with that person. Anger left turns to resentment. Are you with me? Resentment undealt with turns to bitterness. Are you with me? The Bible says bitterness defiles many. When it gets to that stage, it just doesn't affect you anymore. One person with bitterness can tear up a whole family. One person with bitterness can tear up a whole church. I've seen it happen. And the bitterness is there because somewhere back yonder there was an offense, there was a hurt, and it was never dealt with according to the Word of God. And that bitterness is hatred. And the Word of God says if you hate your brother, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't care what your profession is. Everything in the Bible is set against hating someone else. And hatred doesn't begin as hatred. Hatred is simply the full bloom and fruit of a hurt and anger. And so he says, forgive whatever grievance you have against another. It doesn't matter what it is. Peter said, how often shall I forgive my brother? Jesus said, 70 times 7. A perfect, complete number of times. It's unending. You say, how do I forgive? That person may not even know you have something against them. If you live in the proximity of your home, it comes out. If you're in the body of Christ like this, you may not be with them enough for it to come out. But if you have it in your heart and they don't even know about it, you have to find out from God, do I need to go to them and tell them what they've done to me? Or is this a matter that's just on me and I need to settle it with God? Find out very carefully before you go. If they know about it, you have no option. You must go to them. You must go to them. You've got to square it away. When we ran the retreat ministry, we had three young men who lived with us plus an older lady and, we, and a secretary who worked with us. And we learned something very, very early. For, God, for God's spirit to have freedom in our, in, our, in our family life, and that means the larger family, we had to maintain right relationships. That means I can't carry something in my heart. I don't have to go to that person if they don't know about it. If Brother Ed Walker does something to me or says something to me and hurts me and he doesn't know about it, it doesn't mean I have to go to him. The Scripture says when you stand praying, forgive. 
Why, I, why should I jump a, dump a whole load on him? Why not just go to the Lord and say, Oh God, dear Lord, for your glory, I forgive this brother. I choose to forgive him. And Lord, I trust you to make it so real in my heart and for your spirit to so flow from me the next time I see him, I can embrace him and tell him that I love him. I want to tell you something. You've not forgiven until you can look that brother square in the eye, eyeball to eyeball, that sister square in the eye and say, I love you and mean it with your heart. When you meet somebody, if you find yourself looking away, turning away, you're just not free with them, beware, there's something wrong in your heart. Forgive whatever grievance. Notice that in your Bible. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against another. It's plural. It's plural. Folks, we're going to live together. We're going to work together. We're going to play together. We're going to talk together. We're going to disagree. Unity in the body doesn't mean we never disagree. Brother Dodd and I may see two things, one thing two different ways, completely differently, and we may disagree, but that doesn't mean our spirit has to be divided. I can submit to him and he can submit to me. But we don't have to be divided. Now he gives us the measure for how we're to forgive each other. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's the limit. That's the measure. That's the standard. That's the standard. And I want to tell you something. And I have illustrations from those years that I traveled. I have illustrations by the dozens that I could give to you. If you are not willing to forgive and you hold that hurt and unforgiveness in your heart and you're God's child, Hear me carefully. The Bible teaches that if you'll not forgive someone else, the Father himself will hand you over to the torturers. You know who the torturers are? They are the demons. And I have seen it happen. I have seen physical suffering. I mean physical suffering. That was because of unforgiveness. And I have seen individuals get right in their heart where there was that unforgiveness. Get right in their heart. And I have seen the physical suffering leave just that quick. I'm not saying all physical suffering. I am saying some. Folks, it is a serious matter in the sight of God for us to hold unforgiveness in our heart. That's why he says, forgive whatever grievances. That person may not even come to you and say, will you forgive me? You are to forgive anyway, as the Lord has forgiven you. And then lastly, he says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. All of these things we've talked about are evidences of love. All of them are a part of love, but love is bigger than all of them together. The total is more than the sum of its parts. 
Love is more than just these parts we've talked about. He says, over it all, put on that kind of sacrificial love. That's like God has loved you. Put on that sacrificial love as you relate to each other. Two or three questions for us by way of application. First, is it in your heart? Is it in my heart? With resolute determination that we're going to maintain unity in the body? Is it in our heart to put on these characteristics? Is it in our heart to suffer long with a brother or a sister or a family member who has faults, a co-worker who has faults? Is it in our heart to forgive quickly, 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 thoroughly, quickly when somebody hurts us? Norm, that was a gracious thing you did today. Some of you may have been offended by what Norm did when he had all of you kneel and you felt like you didn't have a way out. You had to kneel or be embarrassed. You may have had a hurt inside. The body can forgive him, but if you held out in your heart against Norm because of that, you need to go straight to him and say, Brother, I was offended by that, and I forgive you. Because it's been laid out in the open. The last thing I want to say, if we want God to be glorified in this body, we've got to be actively obeying His Word. Doing. Exactly what it says. Shall we pray? Father, we've shared your word this morning as best we've known. Lord, you've called us to maintain unity in the body. Lord, sometimes it would just be easier, to be quite honest, to cut and run. Dear Father, may your word have its effect. May the Holy Spirit have his way. May Jesus Christ be glorified at any cost to our pride. In his name we pray. Amen.